Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the 5.1 SRD being released to the Creative Commons and what Wizards of the Coast has done based on the whole OGL fiasco. We're going to talk about what that means for our relationship with Wizards of the Coast now. How does that how does how does that make us feel? What what is our relationship with Wizards of the Coast now? I don't think it's ever the same. We're going to talk about that. The Lazy RPG Talk Show was actually nominated the number one RPG talk show podcast on N-World. So that's really cool. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to do a spotlight of the Oracle Character Generator, a new Kickstarter by Nord Games. And we're going to do a product spotlight on Zobek, the Clockwork City, a book that was released by Kobold Press kind of quietly. And we're going to do more questions from our January 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me put on shows like this and you want access to all kinds of exclusive features like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, dedicated Discord channel, the monthly Q&A, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, which you can find down in the show notes below to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for your support. Holy shit. It has been a month. Uh, a lot of weird things have happened this past month. It has been a, for, for somebody who spends a lot of time in this hobby, I have had a tremendous amount of stress caused by all of the big changes that have occurred since December. And this last Friday, this last Friday, Wizards of the Coast pretty much pulled everything back that they had done. In particular, they did two things, two big things. One, they declared that they would not revoke the OGL 10A, the 22-year agreement that Wizards of the Coast has had with third-party publishers to be able to publish D&D compatible material. They are not going to attempt to deauthorize that. And two, they took the 5.1 SRD, essentially the core rules for D&D 5th edition, and put it out under a Creative Commons attribution license. What that means is you can use any of the material in that system resource document, including making derivative works, including copying direct material out of it. And the only thing you need to do in order to do so is attribute Wizards of the Coast. And it's very easy to do so. It's so easy, I immediately added it to the City of Arches sourcebook. I threw it right in the little bottom of the City of Arches sourcebook, which means the City of Arches sourcebook is using material. It's really doing derivative, derivative works on that material. Here is your one task to do today it's important go to dnd beyond go to the article where they talk about it go to that srd 5.1.cc link there click it and it brings up a pdf a 400 page pdf in this pdf they have the license agreement for creative commons and they have all of the material save that document save it I'm, I'm doing it again i already did it but i'm doing it again save it to your computer Put it somewhere safe. Take that document, 400 page PDF, put it in a document that you're backing up and put it somewhere because that document is forever. They cannot take it back. They cannot change it. They cannot update it. They cannot pull some shenanigans to try to bring that material back. The, under the Creative Commons attribution 4.0 license, you can use it for commercial work. You can use it for anything. You can do an interpretive dance you can do pantomimes. You can do whatever you want with it. Any of the material that's in that book, you can use in any way that you want, as long as you attribute to Wizards of the Coast. A tremendous, a tremendous value. Take it, download it, save it somewhere, put it somewhere safe. It is yours 
forever. 5e, our version of this RPG, is ours forever. That is a tremendous change. That is, that is better than saying that they're not going to simply deauthorize the OGL. The OGL was actually a relatively restrictive license. It had a lot of things you couldn't do. And one thing we all learned from this last three weeks of just chaos and madness is a whole bunch of lawyers looked at the OGL 10A. And certainly they couldn't agree about whether it was irrevocable or not, whether it was deauthorizable or not. Some said yes, some said no. I saw, I watched a bunch of lawyers argue about it. There was a whole Discord channel. Only lawyers could talk and lawyers argued about it. And the end result was we really didn't know. We also didn't really know what you could do as far as derivative works were concerned. That's really the issue. The question of derivative works is a big question. Like, It's not just that you can copy material directly out of here. It's that you can use any of the things in here to make your own stuff any way you want. It means you can make your own old school revival or old school renaissance based RPG based on this stuff. And they can't sue you saying, oh, you're making a derivative work of our copywritten material. They can only say that if you're using material that isn't in here. But as far as this is concerned, you are allowed to do that, even for commercial work. That is tremendous. What this means is that 5e as an RPG, if you think about 5e as its own RPG, doesn't belong to Wizards of the Coast anymore. It belongs to all of us. We can now use it and have it. There are arguments to be made. Lawyers, I've heard other lawyers make these arguments that we probably could have used a lot of that stuff already and that really put in a creative comments. It was probably in the public domain. The difference is we know that they know that it's done. We know that they did it. Like they specifically did it. And they can't, 22 years from now, they can't come back and say, well, things change and we changed our minds. You're like, no. Creative Commons license is here. It has been around for like 20 years too. And it's changed tiny little bits. But all, here's the interesting thing about Creative Commons license. It's not run by Wizards of the Coast. They cannot change it. And the Creative Commons group that actually works on that license is doing it to ensure that this kind of stuff can be shared. The, the motivation for modifying Creative Commons licenses is not to help the people that are trying to hold their data back or give them loopholes. It's there to make sure that the stuff stays shareable. And they've spent a lot of time on this and many, many, many people use this license. So holy cow, was that a good day? I was in a meeting with a couple of other producers, one, one group, another company, another guy who runs, a, he's a CEO of another RPG company and my, my, my friend and partner, Scott Gray. And we were, and, and Taylor's joined later, my other partner on this project that I'm working on. And we're like frantically, oh, and we're looking at it. And the guy that I was working with got out of his chair and started dancing and doing karate moves. We were, it was like, oh my God. And and Scott, I think my, my friend Scott Gray posted that like only one other time in his life had he felt a weight lifted off of him like this. Because, you know, this is his full-time job. This is for many of us, this is this is a you know, career that we've sought. And this was really threatening the career. And suddenly that career isn't under threat nearly as much. In fact, it's better than it was. Putting this information out in the Creative Commons is better than the OGL because the OGL was questionable. We didn't know how questionable until this happened. But now we certainly know how questionable. And the Creative Commons license is much stronger. So definitely Wizards of the Coast deserves kudos for putting out that material in Creative Commons. I had no idea they were going to do that. I had no expectation that they were going to do it. I requested it. It was something that I put in my feedback. It's something I recommended people put in their feedback and that, that you know, hey, why not just release the SRD 5.1 under Creative Commons? I had no idea. I had no thought that they would do that. I had no expectation they would do that. It was a lot. And they did. And that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Doesn't make up for three weeks of really pain and stress. We all have to decide that on our own. 
I feel way better about this hobby. I feel very different about this hobby than I did a month ago. And that's something I'm still exploring. That's something that I'm still trying to understand myself, that the relationship between me and the RPG hobby has changed. The funny thing is, I think it was Wednesday of last week that I first started to feel like I had my feet underneath me, that I had a plan about how I was going to work in this hobby, both as a producer and as a fan and, and, and understand like how to make sure that RPGs stayed strong, that our relationship with RPGs stayed strong, no matter what some group decided to do, one individual group decided to do. And I was just getting comfortable with that. And then this happened. And now I'm like, oh, I'm way more comfortable with it. I'm much happier with this, with this hobby. But it doesn't, it's not the same. We're not just going back to things as usual. I will say this. I did go into my closet and I dug out those D&D branded t-shirts that I had put in the closet about a month ago, about three weeks ago. And I took a half of them because there's half that I really like. And there's half that I, like, hey, I don't really, I don't like these shirts that much anyway. And I put them back into my t-shirt rotation. So that was something like I'm, I'm now happier and more proud to wear the D&D ampersand than I was before, but it's still a different relationship. And that is something that I I, I'm exploring myself and I think all of us are probably going to have to explore. I'm not offering advice. Again, I don't, I try not to offer advice as much as possible. I, I do, but I try not to, but it does change what our relationship is with wizards of the coast. And an example is one of the vocabulary changes that I'm going to be working on. And I hope you will help me with this and catch me on it and call me out is I am no longer going to refer to like Wizards of the Coast as a first party publisher and other 5e publishers are third party publishers. We are all 5e publishers now. All of them. Wizards of the Coast is a 5e publisher and so are we. So, so are other 5e publishers. So now I'm going to refer to there's RPG publishers who are publishing other RPGs. There are 5e publishers who are producing 5e material and Wizards of the Coast is one of those. I've talked about this before, though. That, this isn't a huge change for me. I've referred to the idea that we should be treating Wizards of the Coast like a third-party publisher. I brought that up a while ago, and it sounds like an insult. Like, oh, God, you're going to lower them to a third-party. No, third-party publishers are putting out tremendously awesome products. So now, more than ever, particularly because the 5e SRD is now out in the Creative Commons, and anybody can use it any way they want, now I really see 5e as its own open RPG that any of us can write for, and we can write for it forever, and we can write derivative works, which is really the big thing. It's not so much that you can copy material, it's that you can write derivative works against it. That's tremendous. Now there's 5e as an RPG, and there are 5e publishers. Wizards of the Coast is one of those 5e publishers. Probably when I say 5e publishers, I don't know that I'll always be referring to Wizards of the Coast, but because they're the only one that can be a D&D publisher, because they own the brand. They're the only one that can be a D&D publisher, but we can all be 5e publishers. So that's a little, that's like how I'm changing my thought on it, right? That's how I'm changing my vocabulary around this is there aren't 5e publishers. But another big question is trust. I have heard this brought up over the weekend. I've heard it since they said this and I've seen many different reactions and from people that I, 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 I greatly respect. Some people are still very mad at Wizards of the Coast, and that is very reasonable. They put us through a lot of pain over the past three weeks. I, I think some people at Wizards certainly recognize this. We know that Wizards itself, we cannot treat it, we can only treat it as a black box because none of us know really what's going on in the inside. So when I've been referring to Wizards of the Coast doing X, Y, and Z, I'm talking about the company because I don't know anybody else. But I can absolutely be sure there are many people, I am sure, I'm 100% sure, there are many people in the company who are not behind any of this. They did not want this to happen. And they recognize the pain that this caused to the hobby 
and to us. They know that it caused this pain and they really, really wish it hadn't happened. And, and maybe even the people who did it probably really wish. I'm certain they wish it never really happened because they went back to where things were. <laughs> right? So we know that inside Wizards, things are, are, are all over the place too. We don't know if like the same group that put out the SRD in the, in the Creative Commons was even the same group that put out the original license agreements. It, like you read them and they're very different descriptions of what was happening. So we really don't know what's happening in Wizards of the Coast. But it's still a big commercial company. It's still a publicly traded company. Hasbro is still a big $8 billion company. So, so we can still, you know, it's still a commercial company. Like they're not now a 5013C that's suddenly out there just for the benefit of the game. They're still trying to make money. They're still, they still have a legal obligation to provide profit to their shareholders. They don't have a legal obligation to provide a good environment for third, for, oh, see, I did it, for fifth edition publishers to publish. That's something we need to keep in mind. But I see a lot about, I don't trust Wizards of the Coast anymore, or I will trust them kind of, or whatever. There's a lot of talk about trust. There's a lot of talk about like, do, do you love it? A lot of talk about whether or not you can even play, keep playing D&D &D and 5e. And that's fair, right? You can, you can play whatever you want. That, that's cool. I don't, I, whatever you're playing. I'm on your side. Remember that from last week. Whatever you're playing, any RPG that you're playing with your friends, I'm on your side. You're cool. We're, we're good. So how does this, when we talk about trust with Wizards of the Coast, what does that mean? And I, I go down to like, well, trusting Wizards or not trusting Wizards is, is a kind of a false dichotomy. It's not about trust anymore. I didn't trust. So for, if, if I go back a month, and I, I think it's kind of interesting when they first started talking about the OGL and D&D Beyond, it was really like, what are they even saying? I said something back then that I still believe, which is they don't owe us an SRD for like one D&D. &D. They don't owe us a one D&D &D SRD. It was dirty pool to take away the old one. That was bad. That's why everybody freaked out. If they had just said, we're not going to put out an SRD for one D&D, &D. we're going to lock it in. And if you want to work with us, you'll have to talk to our licensing team. That's, they, that's their prerogative. I'll, I'll give you an example. Green Ronin does not have an SRD for Fantasy Age. They don't. Right. There's there are other game companies that don't have an SRD. Shadow the Demon Lord, an RPG I, I love, does not have an SRD. It does not have any sort of system resource document. And you don't go, damn you, Robert Schwab, you owe us an SRD for Shadow the Demon. He doesn't owe you an SRD. He can do what he wants. It's his RPG. Growing your own, it's up to them. I, I kind of that's probably something I'm going to talk about in the future is what does it mean for a company to put out an SRD? And should we lean towards the ones that do? I'm not sure. That's something. I'm going to explore more, but wizards doesn't owe us anything. They don't owe us you know, again, dirty pool to take stuff away. That was really bad. And that's why everybody's so PO'd, but once they've done it and back then when they did it, it was a really good thing. What they just did putting the creative commons, really good thing and not something that we need to hand wave and say, well, they're just giving us what they putting in the creative commons is a big deal a really big deal for this hobby. It is a, it is a big deal that is going to be for the life of the hobby. That's why you have now watching this already downloaded your copy and saved it to your drive and put it on a USB disc that you're going to go take to the bank and put in your safe, safe deposit box. Right. We've all done that. I hope so. Cause it's forever. That document is forever. I had a really funny Twitter argument a, a long time ago. I think it was like three or four years ago. 
I don't even remember who I had it with, but I remember it was another member of the community that I, that I knew somebody I knew and respected somebody I'd still respect. Right. And I don't not respect it because of this and wizards of the coast just announced that they were going to put out their new Sapphire dice collection for the 45th anniversary of D and D. And it was like $550. It was a dice set that was like $550 metal dice made by a really fancy company that makes metal dice and had a little Sapphire and the 2d 20 and it was a 10, a 10 die set, I think. But it's $550. And everyone's like, $550 is crazy expensive. And they're like, yeah, that's right. I didn't buy one. And this guy was like, Wizards of the Coast owes us an anniversary set that's affordable. And I was like, no, they don't. And he's like, yes, they do. It's important. 45th anniversary, big deal. They owe us a dice set. It's, in, it's important that they give us this dice set. They, they owe it to the community to do this. And I'm like, they're not the federal government. They're not a, 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 a 5013C that's charter says that they need to support the community. They don't have to do anything. They could shut wizards down tomorrow and turn it into a patent troll organization or just selling T-shirts or just focusing on other media. They don't owe us anything. They're a commercial company. The only thing they owe by le- legally is return value to their shareholders. They don't know the community anything at all, but we treated it like they did. We treat, they wanted us to, they want wizards wants us to believe that they're like, they're part of the community. They benefit the community. They believe, and many people in wizard of the coast absolutely do believe that, right? They're, they're getting salary and everything like that, but they absolutely do believe in the community and RPG community. So it's not everybody at wizards, but wizards of the coast itself is a commercial company. They're a subsidiary of Hasbro and they're profit motivated. Now they're not perfectly profit motivated. They can make really dumb moves as we've seen in the last month, but they don't owe us anything. So when we talk about trust with wizards, we have to remember that, that they don't owe us anything. They have given us this. They gave us the 5.1 SRD and creative commons. And that's fantastic. And that is makes, that makes trust a different topic because we don't really need to trust them anymore to continue to make material for 5e RPGs that we love. That's awesome. And we don't have to trust them anymore for that kind of thing. Now they can put out products and we can look at the product and say, that sounds really cool. I want to buy that. Or that's not really for me. I don't really want to buy that. Or I wanted that, but then I read about it and I heard it wasn't as good as it was. That's fine too. Now we can treat them like they treat everybody else. So when we talk about trust, what are the other things we need to be considering about trust? Because there are some things that I think we need to keep in mind when we talk about trusting Wizards of the Coast, because there are things they can do that they absolutely have the right to do that can hurt our relationship with Dungeons and Dragons in particular, and maybe with the hobby. But I think we've got some fallbacks that we're better off than we were. And an example was they can dork with D&D Beyond however they want. They can change the pricing. They can change the pricing model. They can decide what material they release there. They can decide what material they take away. They can decide all different kinds of things. For example, they could decide that they want to really push everybody to their new new 3D virtual tabletop. And it actually doesn't use D&D Beyond to do character stuff. So we're going to try to transfer everything over from D&D Beyond and then kill it. They could try to do that. They could change, they, they could change all kinds of things. If you quote unquote bought a book on D&D Beyond, you're renting a book. You, you're leasing a book. I don't even think you're leasing it. You're renting a book, not buying a book. You're, you're, you've, you've, you paid money for a long-term lease of a book and you don't own the book. 
And we saw it. I saw a lot of threads on Reddit that were like, how do I take the material I have in D&D Beyond and turn it into PDFs so I have it locally? And there are tools. There's like plugins and stuff where you can go do that. I don't know what the legalities are of the plugins, so I'm not going to recommend any of them. But lots of people are like, I need to export my stuff from D&D Beyond because I bought it there. So keep in mind, whatever energy, both your time and your energy and your commitment, like your, your, your like learning the tool and understanding the tool and your money, all of that that you put into any one tool like that, they can take away and, and they can change it in ways you don't like and they can modify in ways you don't like. So we, we have to remember that, that we have to, we have to trust when we talk about trust, if you're paying into D&D Beyond, you have to trust that they're going to run a certain way. But I think you, you also want to have a fallback. You also want to know, like, recognize what you're giving them recognize what it means and and give yourself a thought about like if this goes really poorly what's my next plan because it could another example of something they could do is they could either reduce or limit or kill the licenses for both D 5e products and one D for roll 20 and fantasy grounds and i don't think this is a huge stretch to be like oh they'll never do that well maybe Right. I mean, we, we, you know, I'll tell you one thing about predictions. Anybody that says, oh, wizards will always do X or will not do Y. If you can send me an email that shows me that two months ago, you were convinced that they were going to try to deauthorize the OGL and that, and, and, but then they were going to screw up and then they were going to release the whole thing under a creative commons license. Then I might believe the things you think they're going to do in the future. But even then you might've just been right because of luck because it's really easy to be right because of luck. So predictions not so good. I don't have any predictions, but I do know there are pop, there are probabilities or possibilities. And it doesn't seem like it's an unreasonable possibility that wizards would say, we want everybody to use one D&D on our new fancy ass virtual tabletop, which means we really don't want people to be running one D&D on other people's virtual tabletops, which means we're not going to put a one D&D license out for Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. I don't think that's a completely unreasonable thought about what they might do i'm not saying they will i'm not saying they won't i have no probability i'm not going to tie a probability to it but it is it a possible future absolutely is it and i don't think it's an unreasonably possible future a a, a stronger one which they probably wouldn't do i don't think is they probably aren't going to kill the license for 5e products not 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 just the srd they can't do that but they could get rid of things like tasha's and xanathar's and other material that they have been releasing to roll 20 and fantasy grounds they could get rid of that another thing they could do is there is a connection between foundry and dnd beyond that lets you import your dnd beyond content into foundry i think there's like a there's a one plugin that does it there's a guy that runs a patreon that manages it and it wouldn't surprise me if wizards was to try to break that so that you couldn't do that so my point is if you're counting on all of this stuff think about a backup plan just like you backed up your USB disk with your copy of the SRD on it, you want to have another plan. What platform would you move to? Would you still use it? Now, the good here's the good news. There's, there's good news in here, especially with like third-party virtual tabletops. So the SRD is out now. They can put the SRD on there, certainly. They already have, though. But an example is there are now at least three big companies I know of that are making 5e-compatible full systems. And that's Level Up Advanced 5e, which has already done so. And their Level Up Advanced 5e is already available on Roll20 and already available on Foundry and Fantasy Grounds. It's available on all three. They already have that version available, which means you have a 5e engine already running on there that isn't Wizards of the Coast. If you were playing on Roll20 and they take away and they say, we're not doing 5e licenses, you could at least play 5e-compatible games with that stuff. Cobalt Press is also doing Black Flag. I'm almost sure they're going to keep doing that. I would, I feel confident that they're going to keep doing that. That is supposed to be 5e compatible as well. They've already released all their stuff under Fantasy Grounds, Foundry, and I think, or fan, found, I think they've done Foundry, they've done Fantasy Grounds, they've done Roll20, 
which means you have another 5e engine. So maybe you don't like the A5e one, but and you want to use Black Flag. Now you got two. And we heard over the weekend, this is before we found out about the SRD being available in the Creative Commons, that Cubicle 7, who does like the Middle Earth Fantasy RPG, I think they do the Doctor Who RPG for 5e, they make other 5e games and they make full games. They were going to release their version of a 5e system in, they didn't talk about licensing, they didn't talk about what kind of licensing is, but they were going to have their own, which meant that could go to Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and Foundry, which means you have three 5e engines besides D&D that are available on those. So that's your backup plan. You want to keep using Roll20, you love Roll20, and you're worried that Wizards of the Coast is going to pull the D&D 5e license from you, you have those other ones. And if they decide we're not going to put one D&D on there, you can say, oh, that's okay. I don't have to go with one D&D. I have four other systems I can use that are basically fifth edition compatible systems. So that's pretty strong, right? The good. That's what I'm talking about with like a backup plan. Be, be prepared for that kind of stuff. The last is the DMs Guild. Do I think they'll kill it? I don't think a lot, a lot of speculation and I'm not going to speculate. I don't know what they're going to do, but they could, they could, they could decide for whatever reason, they either want to change the guild, change the relationship with the DMs guild or move it to something else, or they just don't like it and they could kill it. And they're totally unlike pulling back the 5e SRD with the OGL, which many of us believe they couldn't do or certainly shouldn't do. They have the full authority to dork with the guild in, in many different ways. And there's a lot of publishers that are published to the guild. That that certainly hurts 5e publishers who have published to the guild badly. Like they're at risk. And I'll give you a really good example of somebody who's been thinking about this hard. And that's Keith Baker. Keith Baker is the creator of Eberron. And Keith Baker has, I think, three different big books that he has released on the DMs Guild to expand Eberron. And again, before D&D released the 5.1 SRD under the Creative Commons license, he posted a, a Patreon post that said, I'm thinking I need to start moving off and writing material that isn't tied to Eberron so I can maintain control over this stuff myself and maintain control over my own IP. I really applauded that. I went, I, I joined his Patreon. I wasn't, I hadn't joined his Patreon to that point. I don't know why I should have, but I, I did now. And just really to give him a thumbs up and to support that idea. I wanted him to know, I'm a Keith Baker fan. I love Eberron. And I think it's cool, but I'm a fan of Keith Baker and I want to see his material. And I personally think that he is in a better spot writing material for himself, writing material in his own IP, his own controlled IP outside of the guild. Ideally stuff that could be dropped into Eberron. There's no reason he can't write new material that could sit inside Eberron that has little hooks and connections that would connect it to Eberron. I fully support him moving to his own material. I hope he does so. I'll buy, I'm, I'll buy his stuff either way. But I'll tell you, like a selfish reason, the quality of the work will be better. And the reason why is the cost to make stuff for the guild at his scale is really high. And taking a 50% cut of his revenue means it costs him, it means he can't put as much direct money into the product itself. And it means the quality of the product isn't as great. So the physical version looks really nice for the print on demand version of his Eberron books. It's also really expensive. And for that same amount of money, he could do an offset print run of his books and it would look far better and it would be cheaper. So that's the selfish reason I'd like him to do that. But that is an example of somebody who's rethinking his relationship with the guild because we don't know what Wizards is going to do with it. And I think that's something really worth considering, really understanding. So when we talk about trust with Wizards of the Coast, those are the things we need to be keeping an eye on. Those are the things that they could do. The good news is, as long as you feel like you're pretty safe with that stuff, you know, you can recognize that, yes, I have another solution other than using D&D Beyond. I have 
other systems and platforms I can go to to continue to enjoy fifth edition on my other VTTs of choice. And I have other ways of publishing my material other than the DMs Guild or ways to find good 5e products outside of the DMs Guild. Those are all good, strong ways that mean you don't have to trust wizards as much because we don't really know what they're going to do with all that stuff. It's still, it's still, I, I, I hope that this whole situation has given them a little bit of humility because I think they kind of needed that. I think, I feel like people in with certain people inside Wizards of the Coast really thought that they were controlling the hobby. And I think they showed them that they're not. And I think that that might be really beneficial for how they relate with the hobby here on out. I hope that that's the case. So I love the Mastering Dungeons podcast. My friends, Sean and Teos do the Mastering Dungeons podcast. It's, it's a podcast I listen to every week about RPG related stuff and I love it. I also really love Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. Morris is the guy who runs N-World. He has, runs N-World Publishing. Really great guy. Big benefit to the community. An example of the benefit he's providing is after this whole thing has occurred with the OGL and the SRD is he has been very active in trying to make sure that level up advanced 5e, which is a full 5e compatible system, is going to be available in an open license. He is still doing so. He's actually brought Paul Hughes. Paul is a hero of mine. Paul is the designer for the Monstrous Menagerie. And I think Morris said that Paul is leading the charge to take level up advanced 5e and release the whole thing under another open license. Probably not the OGL 108. Maybe I'm hoping for Creative Commons. We'll see. I think they mentioned Creative Commons and maybe the Orc license, but some kind of license where we can use it. And that will be tremendous. That means we have more material than just what's in the 5.1 SRD that we can write derivative works for and we can also use directly. And there's so much more stuff in Level Up Advanced 5e than there is in the 5.1 SRD. So that's really great. Anyway, he has a podcast, really, really great podcast. And I, I love his sort of even-handed nature at this. Even during this whole crazy stuff, he had really smart take on it, you know, talked about the things that we knew, talked about the things we didn't, talked about, you know, what he was worried about, what he wasn't worried about, things that, you know, really good podcast. And I really love this podcast. Anyway, they had done a survey of top RPG tabletop podcasts, and I was very privileged to be ranked number one, that this this show, the Lazy RPG Talk Show, previously the Lazy D&D Talk Show, was ranked number one. That was very exciting. And my friends, Sean and Teos, on Mastering Dungeons got the number two spot. So yay for us, right? Very, very good. Check all three out and check out Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG podcast. It is a wonderful, if you want, if you're looking for more good RPG tabletop from people that are really experienced, Morris has been in Synergy for decades. Really, really, really good podcast. But that was awesome. I was so, so excited. So for those of you who ranked and boosted my podcast there, thank you so much for that. Really, really cool. Very exciting thing to do. Let's do a Kickstarter spotlight. So my friends over at Nord Games, they had a Kickstarter last year, which they delivered called the Oracle Story Generator. I have a copy right here. I got, I, I, I backed it myself and I picked that up and it's really cool, very high quality product. And they are doing a new similar Kickstarter for the Oracle Character Generator. So the Oracle Character Generator is a way to build rich characters, NPCs. You could probably build player characters with it or at least get some ideas for player characters for it they have a hero a hero group that you could build player characters but they also let you build npcs and you build very rich npcs with this the idea is that there are five decks of cards the cards are all built around five different kinds of i think right i don't know if the decks are by color or the decks are by 
Five categories, cards are separated into five categories of characters, including heroes and champions, merchants and artisans, nobles and clergy, town folk and travelers, and villains and scoundrels. And then each of those have different ways that you break them up into personality, motivation, flaw, intrigue, all of these different things. And they have examples for the kinds of things that you would get out of this. For example, a paladin of devotion who is driven by an obsession to bring peace to the region of their birth, but their brash actions taint the reputation among the common folk and a secret sibling seeks to undermine them that's a pretty rich character that you, that you can build from generating these cards so the idea is they come on these tarot cards good good sized tarot cards and you can use each card each card has you, you you kind of randomly sort from the card but then on the card there's actually ways to roll dice so that you can even get deeper into building your building your different characters and this one is all about characters the other one is all about story ideas but you can mix all these things together into one group in fact the, the kickstarter lets you back different ones you can get the the pdf or the box set i went for the i went for the box set plus pdf which is 62 bucks but you know really quality you know this this was the equivalent i'll open it up here as i dump dump a bunch of cards comes with a this one came with a good book that tells you like how to do it and how to use it and then the set of cards themselves it actually has extra space if you have other cards but good size big tarot cards so nice set for for, for 62 bucks you're getting a you're getting a good set. But one thing that I really dig about it is if you just want to do a digital version, if you're like I don't really want a big box of cards to generate all this stuff and I'm really just looking to do the PDF, is the PDF is not just like copies of the cards. That the PDF is really built to help you randomly generate this stuff. And this is the sample PDF first of all. Nord, great job putting up a downloadable, beautiful PDF sample that I can get to with one click. If you're running a Kickstarter, don't bury your sample. Make it so I can just click it once and get a PDF. Not everybody does. Don't make me sign up for your store. Don't make me have to give you my email address. Just, you're trying to get me to buy your thing. You want me to buy your thing? Put a PDF up I can get with one click. Nord did. And look at it. Beautiful. Look at the art. They, and the art for all of this. You can actually see it in Kickstarter page. Beautiful artwork for this stuff. I really, really dig the style. Whoever did the art, really fantastic. But you can see now they have the, they're doing it by dice rolls because you have a PDF. You can't really do random shuffling of it. So they do dice roll based stuff and then tell you what page it's on. So you can say, oh, yeah, I rolled a three. That's a cleric. I go to the cleric. Then I got one, two, three, four. I can roll that. I can say it's a life cleric. And you can build from that. So this PDF sampler gives you a good idea of the kind of kind of material that you can get, but also shows you what the PDF will be like, which is usable in a different way that the cards are useful. So even if you just want the PDF, you're going to get a really good list of ways to build out NPCs. And this one is usable. You can use you can use this one right away. So really really cool thing. I, I love random charts and random random table again look at that art really neat i love random charts and random tables for shaking up our brains to come up with interesting ideas i love using it for building npcs i i love i love everything it sounds it, it works really really well so so i definitely i definitely dig it so i would back it i did back it i backed it at the 62 dollar level to get the version and the pdf because i want them both and i saw the quality if you did not pick up the or if you did not pick up the original oracle story generator one and you want both you get the legacy all in which gives you the PDFs of both and the physical boxes of both, which is a lot of material. So really, 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 really cool. So check that out. That is by Nord Games. That is the Oracle Character Generator for Fantasy RPGs. You can find a link to it down in the show notes below.
Late last year, there was sort of a stealth release by Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press runs some tremendous Kickstarters. They're in the middle of their Deep Magic Kickstarter that they do now. They put out a whole bunch of stuff. And I was actually very excited to see that in one of their newsletters, you should subscribe to their newsletter. Right after you subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, you should subscribe to the Cobalt Press newsletter. That they were releasing a new book called Zobek, The Clockwork City. This is a full-size book, 300-page source book that they put out that they just released. They didn't put it as a Kickstarter. There was no crowdfunding campaign. It just came out beautiful book and expands on the biggest or it's kind of not the i don't think i don't know if it's the biggest city in midgard but it is probably the most popular city in midgard from the settings perspective because it's right in the center this 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 city called zobek the clockwork city really interesting history to this city and i've ran empire of the ghouls for example starts in zobek and so i ran a thing in zobek it was actually unfortunate that the, when I ran Zobek, this book wasn't out yet. And just as the characters were moving off to go elsewhere, that's when I got this book. That was kind of unfortunate. It is a, but it is a beautiful book. It is as a good looking book. I've got my physical copy right here. It is as good a book as like the Southlands book. So a really, really solid book. Again, 300 pages. The reason why it was sort of a stealth release, I think, is because it is almost all material that they have released before in a whole bunch of different in a whole bunch of different places. They have, so all Zobek, right? So the Zobek, the Clockwork City Collector's Edition brings together contents from Zobek Gazetteer, Streets of Zobek, Warlock 3 Undercity, and Warlock 30 Zobek, several Warlock layers and other sources, plus new material, including two brand new adventures. So if you were like a big Kobold Press collector, you may have already had this. And I think I had most, if not all of these in PDF already, but I didn't have them physically. I didn't have them in a book. And to be able to buy a single book that covers all of Zobek in one volume was really worthwhile. And some of these sources, I think, hadn't really been, I don't know if all of them had even been upgraded to fifth edition, or if they did, it was a long time ago. So combining all of this material into one book, really nice to have like a single Zobek source book. It's really, a really, really cool thing. The book itself is split into kind of three big pieces. You have all of the descriptions is about Zobek, the Zobek Gazetteer, all the things that you want to know about the city itself, all of the, let's see, yeah, all the history of it, the overview of the city, the government, the districts and locations, guilds and gangs, gods, cult, oh, cults, whoop, cults. I love me some cults. Boy, I had a lot of cults. I, I told you about a like, cult. They had the one cult place when I did Zobek in the Zobek Undercity. I had a realm that was a, the, the bat cult group was doing their stuff there. And the players are like, Does, is this just used for the bat cult? And like, no, no, other cults use this place too. And they're like, what? It's like the YMCA, but for cults? I was like, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> so that was fun. Magic and how that works. Heroes of Zobek are new character options that you can use for your fifth edition characters. And then they have this section called The Streets, chapter nine. And that is a series of adventures. And there are 14 different adventures that you can run in Zobek. So 14 specific adventures. I guess two of these are new. The other 12 were kind of pieced together from other places they have, and they have that. And then they have the appendices, including chase rules, magic books, magic items, monsters, and NPCs, an index, and a, a nice map. I think the map is the same. Yeah, the map of Zobek is the same map that they have been using for Zobek and, and, and other areas, but that's cool. I think, does the, does the book come with a fold-out poster map? It does. <laughs> I didn't even know that. It's not a poster map, but it's got a two-page spread in the book. That's got the whole map of Zobek. So that's pretty cool. If you don't have, if you run in Midgard, I love Midgard. I'm running two campaigns in Midgard right now. My players love Midgard. We really, really like this setting a lot. And you're planning to run in Zobek or you want a city book that just has good ideas for a city. This, I would definitely recommend, recommend this book. For me, I was very excited to see it. 
and eager, eager to pick it up. And, and I was very pleasantly surprised that, you know, it released and I just had it. Unlike the Wasted West Kickstarter, where I back it and I'm real excited and then I got to wait a year. In this case, I was able to buy it and get it. And they have it in stock on the Cobalt, as of right now, as of this recording, they have it in stock at Cobalt Press. You can pick up 59 bucks, gets you the PDF and the hardcover edition. I thought that that was fine. I, I, the, the PD, having the, the PDF was beautiful and the having the, the physical quality is really good. One thing about Cobalt Press products is the print quality has gotten so much better. I think since Southlands, I think I think Southlands was, the, was, was a turning point where they switched over from a more opaque, thicker, rougher page to a slicker, deeper color resolution page. And I kind of wish I had all the old books the way the new books are. I, I really, what I really want, and I would buy it in a second, is if they just took the Midgard World book and printed it in the new printer, I would totally buy it again because it's, it's, it just looks gorgeous. Like the, 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 the color depth. First of all, the size is a lot smaller and the color depth is way better. So Cobalt Press, if you're listening, I would love you to do a print run with your new printer for... Midgard World Book. But if you also want to go back and do a Midgard World Book update, I'd be totally cool with that too. So that is Zobek the Clockwork City. Really, really cool. Really fun. Let's do some Patreon questions. Lucas C says, I want to run more dynamic combat encounters. And I think the problem stems from a lack of interesting environments or battle arenas. I try to get layer actions and things to change up the surroundings, but having trouble developing a process to address the combat environment during prep. How do you approach making a more engaging and dynamic combat space? I have good news for you, Lucas, and good news for all of us. I am working on a book with my friends Scott Gray and Teo Sabadia where you're covering topics exactly like this. I'm not ready to announce it yet, but I am going to give you a sneak preview. And I can tell you, it covers some of the things that you're that you're talking about. Patrons of Sly Flourish, by the way, already know about this book and have already seen other things. There's lots of cool stuff. If you want to get in early on all of this, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish and learn all about this stuff. And in fact, I will probably release this chapter I want to check with Scott and Teos to make sure we're all cool with it, but I'll probably release this chapter to patrons so they can take a look at it. It's a draft, first draft. And the answer is, and here's, here's, here's the, the chapter. This is, a, this is a first draft. I think, you know, I, I wrote it and Scott and Teos left comments on it. And I don't even think I addressed their comments. So it's really rough, but it gives you an idea of what I would recommend, which is this idea of a combat encounter checklist. Now, this is something I used to do a lot in fourth edition times. And I don't do it about as much now, but... The, the idea is there are all these different variables that you can include in a, in, in, a, in a battle, in a battle arena, as you say, that can extend it. I wouldn't recommend it doing for all battles. In fact, I would probably only do it for big boss fights. I don't think I would worry about doing it for like hallway encounters or anything like that. But these are a few different things that you can consider when you're building, when you're building out your combat encounter. And it's a nice, easy checklist. Who are your monsters? And pick, in, in some cases, you don't want to just have one kind of monster. You want a couple different kinds of monsters. You actually have these ideas of monster roles, which they used to have in fourth edition. Who are your backline monsters? Who are your frontline monsters? Which monsters synergize well with, another, with one another? Which ones have like different things that help each other out? You can think about that. What are the, what are the monsters and what's the, the synergy between these monsters that you're going to drop into battle? What's the location itself? What makes it cool? What makes it interesting? Terrain-wise, what makes it kind of, what's the shape of of it how do you get the freaking characters to get out of the doorway that's a big one like how do you get them into the room right how do you get them out there so what's the fantastic location what are some zone wide effects a zone wide effect is sort of a lightweight panic that's affecting everybody and i have some examples here an unholy crypt mean that healing is only half as effective right the blazing fires that are removing any fire resistance psychic whales that create a dc 10 con check to successfully cast a spell so different ways that you can put a whole layer 
on top of the whole thing. So it's always going on. While you're in this battle, this is always going on. You can, of course, tweak this a little bit and say, well, it's always going on because of that crazy psychic pillar. If we destroy the psychic pillar, it goes away. So you can do it. You know, zone, uh, uh, the zone causes all spells to fire off wild magic. Every time you cast a spell, wild magic kicks up. So those are examples of, of zone-wide effects. Traps and hazards. What are specific areas where they will either trigger off a trap or there's a hazard that they have to avoid. Now, if you put them too far out of the way, they're just never going to come into play. But you also don't want them to like really limit the limit the battle either. You want the battle to be dynamic. So you want to be careful about where you put these traps and hazards so they don't just make, again, you don't want your characters like cuddled up in a ball, not wanting to go anywhere. Because like, oh, I'll step on caltrops if I go out there. So you want to be careful about how you place these traps and hazards out there. A big one are advantageous positions. It's really easy for DMs GMs, GMs and DMs, to build battle arenas so that they're always against the characters, where everything is going against the characters. I, you go into a room, lava's spewing up, but it's all fire elementals who are immune, and your fire resistance is down, but and they do like extra fire damage. Like you don't want to set it up where it's just all against the characters. Like that, that sucks. So what are some ways? And this is a good way to get them away from the stupid doorway. If you say, oh, way up high, there's this ledge that you can jump up onto. And if you can get up to that ledge, you have advantage on anybody that's down below. That's one of my favorites, is like put high positions that are risky to get to, but once you get there, you get advantage on the people below. I really dig that. I have the high ground. So what are some advantageous positions? Another one might be there could be a whole, an arcane circle. And if a spellcaster can get to the arcane circle, they can get advantage on their spell attacks and creatures have disadvantage on DCs against their spells. Stuff like that. But the wizard has to get the hell over there into this risky spot in order to have this advantage. And then tell them that they can do so. Tell them that like you, because you're, this is going to be one we're going to talk about in one of the future questions. Because you are trained in arcana, you know that if you were to stand over in that circle, you would have these benefits get them to go don't don't hide the fact that they get these benefits tell them what are other interactable objects what are things that you can have in this room that they can dork with they have levers that you can pull that open up pits crumbling statues that can easily collapse pillars that collapse part of the ceiling chandeliers upon which to swing what are all the different things that you can put here that characters it's a jungle gym make a jungle gym out of it put a whole bunch of crap up there that characters can do stuff with what are areas for co covers an easy one what are some areas for cover that characters can go and hide behind so they can get their the plus two bonus i really go with the Cover, what is it called? Like light cover is easy to get hard, you know, heavy cover is hard to get, whatever they call that. What are some fan, difficult or fantastic terrain? A little bit like hazards, but what are some things that you can do to the terrain overall to make it interesting? Like there's a chasm, there's a br rickety bridge over a deep chasm, section of anti-gravity where if you go inside, you actually flipped up to the ceiling. What are some things you can do? An anti-life area where living creatures are vulnerable to necrotic damage, stuff like that. Then a big one is the goal. Change the goal of the battle. Instead of just kill the bad guys, what is the thing the characters are trying to accomplish in this? Maybe it's, I have to get over that platform and destroy that sphere so that no more undead will spawn, right? What are the things that you can do to make the goal different for a battle? So though, that's that's this checklist, right? And I don't, I don't think it covers absolutely everything, but it covers a lot of stuff, right? And you probably don't want to do all of this. If you did all of this in every encounter, that would be overwhelming. But you can go through and ask yourself, you know, oh, which, which of these are the ones that I want to drop into this particular battle? Maybe it's only one or two. Maybe it's a few of these. In a boss fight, you, might, you, you, could, you could add quite a few of these. So those are some ways to kind of shake up your encounter. This is something that I've been doing since the fourth edition days. I still do it for boss fights. I also go really lightweight for many of the battles that I go. So don't feel like you have to do this all the time. It's really meant for big, juicy, chewy battles. And 
If you like this kind of advice, if you're looking for this, keep an eye out for my next book, the next book that I'm working on with my friends Teos and Scott, Teos, Teos Abadia and Scott Gray. We have a, a book that we're working on. We're probably 90, 90% done with the first draft. And we are working on the Kickstarter. And we are hoping, we are almost certainly going to launch the Kickstarter March 1st. So you'll hear, you're going to start hearing about it next month in February. And you're going to hear a lot about it in March. And I'm really excited for it. It's going to be really, really good. I'm really excited for it. And I'm really glad this OGL stuff is behind us because now we're really excited about doing it. Oh, I'm so happy. Lucas, I hope that answered your question. Colin E says, I'm starting up a campaign in the Barcelona region, Spaghetti Fantasy and Fantasy Middle Italy, Medieval Italy. And I found the plot of a lot of Disney movies, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback, and the movie with the mermaid chick. Mermaid chick? Really? Really, Colin? Fit really well with the themes and overall feeling of the setting. How would you reskin a plot line so it's not too obvious to the players what you're stealing from? Don't worry about it. Your players, this is that whole, there was that whole study about if you tap out the beat to a song, you're like 80% convinced that people are going to know what song you're tapping out. And the reality is they only get it like 10% of the time. Most likely they're not going to know. And even if they do know, so what? They have the model in their head. It helps them. They got to discover something and it's okay. So I wouldn't worry about that. Don't worry about hiding it too much. Many times you can sort of flip, flip the, you can sort of flip the NPCs around a bit, change the idea, switch genders, you know, lots of different things you could do to kind of shake up the plot a little bit so people can't get it, but don't worry about it. One thing I will offer as a, that's kind of tangential to your question, but related to this idea, when you're looking at a movie plot line that you want to drop into your game, think about the situation that makes the movie interesting and use the situation. Don't use the plot of the movie. Don't, don't follow the beats that the movie follows. Instead, look at the situation and say that situation is what the story of your adventure is going to be. But they might go off in a completely different direction. That's why some movies are work really, really well as game plots. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Seven Samurai, Jaws. There's a lot of movies where the plot line works really well. And there are other ones where you're like, not so much because... The way that the characters re act in the movie is what mattered. The situation didn't matter. So think about the situation. And, and not every movie is really good. Some movies are really good. Some really aren't. If you want examples of movies that are, I recommend The Lazy DM's Companion, which takes movie, movie situations and builds out all the different ways that you can expand them out into an adventure for a game. But be careful with that. Colin, great question. Andrew F. says, I'm looking to create a BBEG, Big Bad Evil Guy, based off an existing PC character sheet. Is there a suggested process to do so? Or should one start with a monster stat block and update that instead? Start with the monster stat block and update it. Almost certainly. You probably, instead of having a BBEG that's based off, an, that mirrors the character, let the monstrous version of the character be different let them mutate in a certain way let them have abilities that the other character doesn't have they don't have to match they don't have to match that instead look at a stat block for a monster that you think fits well with the general theme and and what you want the character the, the mirror character to do that works better than don't don't try to build a character you're, you're spending a lot of time you don't need to spend so instead modify a stat block oh almost always reskin you know, there's, there's like a path that you could follow for this. One, use a monster that already exists. Just use it. Two, use a monster that already exists. Just call it something different. Three, use a monster that already exists. Change one or two traits and then call it something new. Four, use an existing monster. Change a few of its features. Give it a few other things and, 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 and call it something different. And then five, take a couple different monsters, mash them together. 
Six, you, you want to go real far down the line before you're building a monster, right? By the way, I have a new book coming out that is very interesting in this area. So you may keep an eye out, Andrew. So Andrew, that's what, uh, definitely reskin. Start with reskinning and really go down the line before you really need to. And the answer is, again, just like players aren't going to know that you're using a movie plot line, they're not going to recognize that you're using the same monster in a different way. Like you don't have to do a lot of work to modify monsters to, 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 to get them to get them work. Haley M says, combat encounter length. It depends, of course, but do you or your players have a base expectation of how many rounds feel too few or too many for a main story-related fight? If you talk about buffing hit points on monsters and villains, is that because you expect them to last a minimum number of rounds? No, I don't really think about that much. The answer is probably around three, but I don't really worry about that much. For me, it's the overall feeling of the game itself. How's the pacing of the game? If people take a long time to get through a round, maybe it isn't three. If people are ripping through rounds, maybe it's four or five. But I don't really have a number of rounds that I think about. For me, I look at the energy. How do I feel about what's going on? How do the players feel about what's going on? And I'll tune the dials around that. Do we feel like, oh, now we're just a drag and it's too many and we're just waiting to finish things off. Then I turn the dials. But it's it's about the feeling of the encounter more so than the number of rounds. The number of rounds isn't really, I don't. I wouldn't worry too much about the number of rounds obviously like if it's less than a round you're like that's probably too short right and if it's more than four rounds that's probably too long but generally speaking it's not about the number of rounds it's about the energy that feeling of energy are you enjoying it are the players enjoying it are you pouring interesting things that are going on to think about that energy at the table more so than the number of rounds and turn the dials around that energy more so than more so than any kind of specific Haley, good question dr fugue says happy new year last year you played blades in the dark and Numenera, do you have any plans for playing another system this year? And if so, which ones? Yes, I do. I really want to play the new 13th Age. I have the, I am one of the lucky beta testers, one of the, one of the lucky play testers for the 13th Age second edition, as my players like to refer to it, 13.5 Age. And I really want to play that. So will we? I hope so. Do I know for sure we are? No, but my players are on board and I love 13th Age, so I would definitely like to try that out. I would also really like to try out Shadow of the Weird Wizard, the new Shadow of the Demon Lord game that's coming out. I'd definitely be interested in taking a look at that too. I picked up a bunch of other ones. I picked up Band of Blades. I picked up Thirsty Sword Lesbians. I picked up Monster of the Week. So I'm interested in trying those out too. I don't know when or how, you know, time, right? Don't know how things are going to go. But yeah, there's lots of games that I want to play. And But I, I bet you, I would I would put a higher probability that I'll play 13th Age. And then we'll see. So we'll, we'll check that out. Nisho says, I've been meaning to create my own one-shot adventures. I have tons of inspirational material, both official and unofficial. But what, whenever I actually put something on paper, I just think that my efforts can't be as good as what's already out there in terms of published adventures. How do you cross that line to actually finish creating something and have enough confidence to bring that to the table? I don't have any trouble running published adventures or campaigns. So is this for... So the question I have of this, creating your own one-shot adventures, are you looking to publish your own one-shot adventures? Or are you looking to make one-shot adventures for you and your group? If you're making, and I'll, I'll answer a little bit of both. So if you are building them for yourself, you're in a really good spot because you get to design exactly what you want to build for your players. Building your own one-shot adventures for your characters, much easier to do than taking something off the shelf that wasn't designed for your characters and making it work. So lots of people make their own adventure. More than half of DMs, I think, when I last time I surveyed it, write their own adventures for their own players. And their own characters. If you're talking about making a one-shot adventure that you want to publish, first of all, you're aiming in the right direction because one-shot adventures is probably the easiest way to get into publishing something that people might actually use. Big campaigns, I've seen a lot of people that start with big campaigns, not so much. 
And the big piece of advice I would give you, first of all, absolutely just publish. Don't, 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 it's so easy to second guess yourself. And it's so easy to say, oh, everybody else is making something better. Just do it. And this is hard because like there's, there's, there's something, this is something I've been talking about. Like the difference between, you know, this is going to sound a little harsh, right? Pardon me for a minute. To me, the difference between an amateur and a professional is that an amateur gets stuck with like, you know, I, I don't feel like I can do this. Or I don't feel, I don't feel like the creative spark isn't there. And I just don't feel the same way that I felt about this when I started. Well, that's everybody. Everybody feels that way. The pro just keeps going, right? The, the professional just says, I don't care that I don't feel it. I'm writing this damn thing. And they just go. And there's definitely, you definitely want to pick up a bit of Ed Wood. Check out the movie Ed Wood with Johnny Depp, published in 1994. This is a really profound movie. And one of the things that I really loved about it is Ed Wood is this director, the way it plays in the movie, I don't know how true it is, but the way it plays off is that Ed Wood is a really terrible director. He's really, really bad. And there's this great scene where like his monster is carrying a woman and he like bangs her head on the wall and the whole wall moves because it's this fake wall. <laughs> and the guy says, are you sure we want to keep going with that? Like, it looks like he had a little trouble with that wall and he goes there are walls in life right <laughs> and it was this wonderful like he just didn't care he just kept going be a little like ed wood doesn't matter if it's good or not just keep going just keep going and so but but now the, the other advice and i think I've, i gave this before too is really think about who you're giving it to instead of making this like a a project of love for yourself that you have this thing you want to make Think about who you're writing it for and what gift you're giving to them. What, what, how are you helping them? Really think about the reader. Really think about the GM that you're writing this for and how you can make this as easy as possible for them to run. A big way is fewer words. Write fewer words. Cut your text. If you want a good model of like an adventure that I think is a really good one that covers this well, take a look at Dragon of Ice Spire Peak in the D&D Essentials Kit. Write really brief stuff, really limited, and I think a fantastic starter adventure, and I think a really good adventure overall because it just gets you the facts. So, Nisho, the answer is you, you're going to feel that way. You need to take that. You need to set it aside. Thank it for its service and keep going. When you, when you feel that doubt of like, why am I doing this? There's so many other good adventures out there. You got to take that, recognize what it's doing. And what it's doing is it's trying to get you to stop writing. So take that, thank it for its service, set it aside and keep writing. And when you're looking at your writing, ask yourself, who am I writing this for? And how am I helping them? How's every paragraph? And what can I do about this paragraph to make it help them more? So I think that really helps. We'll do one more. Josh says, you've had several discussions regarding encounter benchmarks, challenge rating, and designing memorable encounters. An issue I've often, that is often brought up is the imbalance in action economies between the party and the monsters, especially in boss encounters, which can result in combats feeling very swingy as the monster unleashes a barrage of attacks on their turn before the party bursts in and go, in, go down in one go and during the sequence of theirs. I'm generally not keen on the reliance of monsters on multiple hits, gen, generally splitting them among the last characters to deal damage to the monster for those in range. I wonder if you've considered allowing certain monsters without minions to have multiple turns in within the same combat round to balance the action economy out a bit and spread attacks and damage out throughout the round to your mind would this require massive rebalancing or would you or would this allow for higher cr creatures to live up to their level a little bit more without the need to up their hit point or damage so one thing you can do is like anytime you're going to have like a solo monster like that is you can make him a legendary and give him legendary actions and that will help your action economy the way you're talking about i i actually again like the idea of challenge rating stops the minute you actually apply a monster to your actual characters because now you've got more information than the designers did about how well a monster is going to balance with the characters because you know things about the characters that nobody else knows you know 
any synergies they have, any weird magic items they have. You know the situation in the battle a lot more. And what that means is you know more about the situation. So you don't have to worry about challenge rating. And if you want to give them more actions, the idea of like they get three legendary actions and on those legendary actions, they can either move, move without provoking or make an, make an, an attack. That works pretty well. I would clarify to the players that you are running a legendary monster so they know this. You can also, depending on how high level they are, you can add legendary resistance as well. That, that works pretty well. And that helps balance the action economy. Now, if you give a normal monster three legendary actions in which they can make an attack, they're going to do, in some cases, double, the, double or even more than double the amount of damage they normally do. So you want to keep that in mind. But if they're by themselves, that might still be okay. It means they will be hitting well outside their challenge rating. But again, you don't have to worry about recalculating the challenge rating. Never recalculate the challenge rating for your game. That's, that's a piece of advice I'll offer. I know advice is BS, but I'm going to offer that. And, but, but just keep in mind, if you take a normal CR8 monster and you say, I'm now going to let that CR8 monster get three legendary attacks, it's going to be hitting way harder than a CR8 monster. But that might be okay. And your idea about spreading the attacks out, that works really well too. If you can find a way to give a monster an ability to hit back and back characters, one way is to let them move without provoking opportunity attacks somehow. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. If you can figure out a thematic way for them to move without provoking that lets them go to the back line and threaten the back line and a lot of times with a single monster it's hard to threaten the back line that can that can do it but i would say like be comfortable adding legendary actions to solo monsters particularly monsters that are fighting characters that are higher than that are like fifth level or higher because fifth level characters and above have lots of different ways to handle single monsters so josh hope, hopes that helps yeah you're on you're on the right track but i, I think looking at how legendary monsters works is really a, a, a good answer Friends, I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me today while we talk through all of these awesome topics. If you enjoyed this show and you want more content like this, please subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. If you subscribe, you get access to an adventure generator PDF, free adventure generator PDF, and you get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material. City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, lots of exclusive adventures, the grand Q&A like we were just doing, and a dedicated Discord channel. You can also pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, and the Lazy DMs Companion. All of those are down in the show notes below. Thank you all so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.